0: Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I'm Aaron Schweitzer, publisher of The Source. Uh, I am joined by Nicole Vulcan, editor. Uh, She is co-hosting. This podcast is powered by The Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. We are still enjoying our 25th anniversary year. Uh, We're gonna ride this birthday party out for another couple months. Uh, we're pleased that you're taking some of your time to listen to us chat with the po- people who shape our community on this podcast. Today, we are speaking with Ellen Waterston. High Desert writer Ellen Waterston has published four poetry and three literary nonfiction titles, including most recently Walking the High Desert Encounters with Rural America Along the Oregon Desert Trail. It's a University of Washington Press in 2020. Also, Hotel Domi Did I say
1: that right, now? Domi Locos.
0: Moonglade Press 2017 is her most recent collection of poetry. She serves on the faculty of the OSU Cascades Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing and is founder of the Writing Ranch, which conducts writing workshops and ret- t- retreats and of the annual Waterson Desert Writing Prize, recently adopted as a program of the High Desert Museum. She lives right here in Central Oregon. In addition to the accolades named above, she's also a contributor to the Source Weekly, has written a number of things over the years, but most recently we approached her about doing a column. She approached us, actually. She approached about us. About doing a column. I think it was a mutual approach, <laughs> which is the third act, focuses on ageism and aging, and it's been going for two years now. Uh, we'd like you. To start off this thing, maybe share with our listeners and readers uh, your motivation for starting that column and what kind of opened that door for you.
1: <laughs> it's called birthdays. <laughs> yeah. It's called birthdays. It's called um, all, all of the rumors are true. <laughs> as you get older, uh, you do become invisible, particularly women. There are all kinds of forms of ageism yeah. that are real. And, uh, and it's also uh, a, a big territory because the boomers now are about to be the largest um, demographic, sure. if they aren't already, um, in the United States anyhow. And that has all kinds of good and bad implications for all of you who are younger, including <laughs> yeah. the possibility you'll ever get any Social Security because we'll take it all.
0: Yeah, there's the inverted the inverted pyramid where uh-huh. you know those of us in Gen X have more people on top of us and using more of our the retirement services than right. we're supposed to be uh, right providing for our work.
2: Gonna, we're just going to charge you a lot for your care, so that's how we're going <laughs> to get it back. You're
1: right. I know people are starting to figure it out. Anyhow, it's it's actually been a very very interesting process for me and um, hearing from others in the community. And drawing on lots of materials all over the place, sort of globally. I mean, there's yeah. just a lot being written about, thought about, um, in terms of what it is to be older. Now that we have all sorts of ways of staying alive longer, is it a happy existence, right? Is it, right. Is it just the matter of keeping your heart ticking? Or, yeah, what about that good old quality question? Yeah. So it's, it's a big topic yeah
0: well i was really uh happy that uh someone like yourself was willing to to tackle it cuz even just personally going there and and being willing to explore that stuff and speak about it and admit to these kind of things that that happen to you as you as you do age we all age but nobody really wants to
1: nobody wants to talk about it we're all
0: we're all in our heads 35 right and 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 staying there
1: that's old. That's pretty mature. Yeah. Congratulations.
0: Can you claim that? I I'm a little past 35.
1: In maturity? Yeah,
0: in maturity. Oh. Yeah, that's a tough one.
1: Okay. Yeah. I'll
0: stay I'll say I'm still at that level of immaturity.
2: <laughs> Ellen, I know we've talked about this a little bit, but just, you know, for the benefit of those listening, what kind of, you know, conversations do you have with people in the community about that column, about the, and about the topic of aging and ageism?
1: Well I mean you know, given what I think is the general readership for the source i i am guessing that the the audience uh the reader audience is lots younger than the demographic that I'm writing about, and so um a lot of what my thought process is is who i who am i who am I talking to mm-hmm. a and b to fairly represent um my fellow aging folks <laughs> um so when I'm talking to others between the ages of, say, I don't know, 60 and 90, um, uh, they're, they're excited that there is a platform, actually, in the community for some discussion about this. So the feedback is pretty, pretty good and a lot of suggestions and lots of wonderful perspectives come through. Um, and and it, it truly isn't for sissies. It really, it yeah. truly is not for sissies, it's particularly when you kind of start migrating out of the 70s into the 80s. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there. I, th- I also feel that we understand that you become a bigger target. I think that's generally accepted both for health challenges, so, sort of uh, grandchildren, children issues in some cases, even parents still alive. Uh, so certainly people in their 60s are experiencing that sometimes. So it's just an extraordinarily challenging time as though any other sort of decade or or age period in your life isn't.
2: Yeah. I mean, you really go deep in the column for those who haven't checked it out yet. I mean, you talk about some really kind of heavy topics. You know, of course, like loneliness you've talked about. Sex. Sex. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of sex in the columns these days. So. <laughs> well,
1: Between yours so and then we have a sex therapist. Oh, you have a sex no. therapist. Oh, Sorry. all right, well, I'll have to consult that column more often. And maybe it'll affect <laughs> what, I, what I put out there for from, from, uh, from my folks.
2: What kind of research do you do for these columns? I know you spend a lot of time thinking about the column and, um, and crafting it. So, you know, what does that look like for you in the back end?
1: On the month, uh, Given that it's a monthly column... Um, you know, it sort of suggests certain themes, right? Here we are, January, New Year's, all of that. You'll see, I haven't written it yet, or partly written, coming up. Um, You know, spring cleaning, all of that, what can that mean? But I live in metaphor a lot, and so uh, the sky's the limit, kind of. I also have my eye out all the time for books being published. Local people are sending me books that they, together with other people their age, have created perspectives oh, on cool. aging yeah, yeah it's very very interesting lots of people are just trying to wrestle with you know what's it all about alfie at this point yeah um, how do we stay on purpose do we care do we just kick up our heels and even those options are very very privileged right so how do you embrace the full spectrum but uh yeah lots of lots of uh, magazine articles books um and watching some great examples of aging creatively and how, how they conduct themselves, how they how they remain active in the world and kind of, as I say, on purpose.
0: Do you find that, um, I guess, it feels to me like in this day and age, we are really focused on youth, you know, or maintaining your youth, and you're, you're somewhat looking backwards as you're going forward into, into old age, and um, there has to be that moment when all of a sudden you turn around and it's like, you know, hey, maybe I should be thinking a little more seriously about that.
1: Well, it's no accident that when the phrase old age is said, just as we just heard, there's a drop in the voice, old age, when we talk about old age. Yeah. You know, when you're talking to young people and you bring up the subject of old age, Right. And so right, right there um, is reason to uh, just kind of be a little bit more fair about this. First of all, it's it's inevitable and it's happening every single moment of every single day. We're all doing it. So uh, I think that the, the sort of tenor of the voice needs to just go up ever so slightly about uh, the fact that it's it's a great resource. Uh, it's a um, it's a great resource for perspective. It's a it's a great resource for a different kind of energy, not a hard charging one. Yeah. Um, there are many of us who refuse to stop participating athletically. Uh, the sort of geezer jock syndrome, but <laughs> but that's a wonderful thing to keep moving, yeah. to keep moving, and to keep a quickness in your step. So, so this next column will address some of that in a slightly more playful manner as we enter the new year.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, talking about keeping moving, you took on a new role not that long ago, um, teaching over at OSU Cascades in the MFA program. So let's jump over to that topic. What does that look like for you? And, um, you know, what does it look like teaching writing in this day and age?
1: Well, I will say that I've been teaching writing forever through the Writing mm-hmm. Ranch. Uh, but with Oregon State University as a low-residency MFA, so it's a hybrid. So yeah. only two two-week periods of the year are the students on campus. And the rest of the time, it's yeah. remote. It's Zoom. Um, and, and the hybrid is, is helpful for those who have a job or working. Um, and so they can sort of manage both. It's a very accessible form of, of a, a master's degree. And there are similar, there are many, many low residency MFAs and other kinds of uh, master's programs that you can obtain in this manner. So the experience at OSU is, for me, is hearing from younger students. Uh, there are also a lot of students who attend on the GI Bill. So they've come from a military experience and now are seeking to move into another direction and or complement what they're doing. So it, it's, a, it's a short course in terms of the sort of 20-somethings that are involved in what it's like to be that age in this world today.
2: Mm-hmm. And,
1: again, you talk about not for sissies. It strikes me that <laughs> the 20-year-olds are, uh, you know, they're just – trying to keep their balance within a world of, as we've all heard about it, right, the social media, the the attacks on on privacy, you know, how do you stay with it and not compromise that, Um, just what they're fed online all the time, all the time, how you uh, know who you are, and this started right in middle school for this group, or no, even before, right, because they're the digital generation. Yeah, right. So... They, they have been told who they are and, and their position in it through social media for a long time. And so as they're trying to, in, in the case of the younger students, put some of this on paper, on the page, uh, which feels sort of archaic and old-fashioned in a way, right, a manuscript. Yeah, that's
0: what I was going to ask. Like you're teaching them to write when they've been doing with their thumbs, you know, since they were, you know, four yeah. So the, how how much does that change the way their their discord is and what they're thinking about when they're thinking about, quote, creative writing?
1: Well, what's wonderful is that some of the language, some of the elasticity of language and some of the shortcuts mm-hmm. that have been created make the writing very peppy and exciting. Yeah. Huh. So that's not a terrible thing. Yeah. The other is <clears throat> that this format of writing a manuscript, which is what happens on the way to the thesis, right, right. on the way to getting the the degree – um, is that it's it's a rec- the requirement is to s- sort of pause and reflect. Uh, not that everything being written is a memoir, but frequently there's a lot of memoir work, uh, and it could end up being historical nonfiction or a variety of different types of nonfiction uh, or fiction or poetry. I mean, the the program offers a whole variety of approaches to creative writing. Uh, I think the the program itself, the faculty that's involved, is very, very exciting. I think they need to uh, let the the community know how exciting they are. Um, But as with many things at OSU Cascades, it's growing, and the excitement for students, too, is that they're helping shape that. They're helping shape what it is. So for me, it... um, it is gives me great understanding of what it is to be coming out of the military what it is to be a 20 something what it is to be returning to education at a much yeah. later stage so in that sense the format of the program is very very accessible and it brings a wide variety of students
2: i was curious just about like length because some of the most popular you know writings that we do are the really short things um, you know, which is just like I have feelings about that. <laughs> you know, we spend all this time writing these beautiful 1500 word features and then the, the you know, two sentence food stories is the most popular. So I was curious <laughs> if, you know, um, if, if, you know, if, if you know, if you found a difference in like people's capacity to write long format or anything like, you know, just what the the thinking of a young writer might be compared to. Someone who's been around in the game for a while.
1: Yeah, you know, I find that their interest in fascination with curiosity about language is timeless, ageless, generational mm-hmm. You know, I have to say that that's pretty, pretty true across the board. Some of the credit, if not all the credit for that, goes to the faculty. The, the the readings that they're required to do, the exercises that they're required to do, um, the amount of work that they are obliged to produce, and then the, the feedback that they, that they, the faculty, give the students in a whole variety of forms, whether it's mentoring, which is one kind of relationship between instructor and student, or in a more of a class setting, or during the residency itself, when all kinds of guest Authors are brought in, and and so it just becomes, and it's sort of a a not cool, cool or a, a cool, not cool um, to just geek out on mm-hmm. word choice and yeah, and and the the imp- impact of that column, or do you, or sorry, comma, or do you really need it anymore? Mm-hmm. Um, Apparently, there's great debate about that. The last column before the and after three things are listed.
2: Oh man, Alan, yeah. are we going to have a debate about the Oxford comma? <laughs> let's now? not. Let's what not. Let's not geek comma? out right here. This Uh-oh. is.
0: I could sense what could happen right now. <laughs> we'll
2: just say the source does not support the Oxford comma. <laughs> Did
1: you it. hear that, listeners? <laughs> it can <laughs> be dropped. However, you feel about it, you yeah. can write me <clears> a letter to the editor, to the editor about that.
0: <laughs> We're going into some heavy territory here. <laughs> you can
1: tell how. It, you know, it's not quite you need to get out more often, but there's this fascination with language and words. I yeah. mean, you're talking to the wrong person. Yeah. I love it.
0: You know, one one thing I remember about uh, my own time as a, a college student in creative writing classes is that it was a when you got into those classes, it was a time for pause. You know, you, your life was frenetic. And I remember one pr- professor in particular was like, the door's shut. Whatever's happening beyond that door is not happening right now. It was a little zen moment and I you know, being new to that whole experience as a twenty something, I was like, Wow, this happens. You have these like little eddies in the pool and, and given the pace and frenetic uh, energy around youth and and that culture, I'm wondering if that's more pronounced now, if you see this kind of like, Wow, this is a thing, you know, we, we can we can pause, we can we can write, we can think.
1: Well, I—I I mean, uh, hopefully, the, the in the general tradition of higher education, if you're going into science, you gotta—you gotta stop, mm-hmm. look, think, calculate. You know, it's the sort of gardener, right? Pause, ponder, prune. <laughs> and I—I I, I would hope that uh, higher education holds on to that. I mean, I'm a great advocate for the humanities generally. Yeah, I worry that without a heavy dose of humanities, we don't learn how to think. Uh-huh. We don't. We learn. We learn how to operate. Right. You know, almost sort of in a, in a formulaic or algebraic or I don't know what um, mathematical terms that would be. You know, but um, I I I am an enormous advocate for more humanities, and um, yeah. Uh I think if you know how to write and think you can you can survive almost anything. If you know how to write well and think well, you can survive yeah. almost anything.
2: Mhm. Well, we wanted to talk a little bit about the Waterston Desert Writing Prize. I'm I just um I wanted to back up on it. I've been aware of it, but just tell us a little bit about its genesis. Where, you know, how did this idea come about?
1: Well, um in 2002 Um, this hen uh, on the other side of this mic hatched The Nature of Words. And um, that was a literary nonprofit that was a robust and exciting literary event in Bend, Oregon uh, for 13 years, let's say. And then for a whole variety of reasons, it shuttered and the endowment that had been created with the nature of words was um, something that would either sort of evaporate or it could be reconstituted in and around some other literary arts expression. So I thought, hmm, how about a desert prize? Um, Now, the desert is my muse. I love the desert. I can't really explain it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me in my sort of life cycle, circle, whatever. Uh but so there that that was that. So in twenty fifteen, um after you know, the nature of words had, had truly ended its course run, um, the Waterston Desert Writing Prize was created. It was named Waterston because um my actor brother Sam Waterston established the endow- the endowment originally, and ah, that got it. that okay. moved to really launch this this uh, prize. Um, and so four years ago, the museum adopted it as a program, and which has has sort of given it um, a lot of gravitas and a lot more attention yeah. and and. And it's growing. This it's very very evident in this year's announcement for the prize. The submission period has just opened. It is open until spring. Uh, the the cash award is three thousand dollars. You also the winner also gets two weeks at Playa, an artist and scientist residency campus out on Summer Lake, which is a wonderful um, additional award. Speaking of stopping and writing and being yeah. quiet, um, and the. The purpose of the prize is to recognize and encourage writing about deserts anywhere and really quite freely interpreted as the prize matures. So, for example, would a coral reef, a dead coral reef, be evidence of a form of desert, desertification? Um, what about, you know, an emotional desert? We haven't gone there, but I think the those who are considering submitting should— not feel confined to dry, sandy places. Well, that's really helpful. <laughs> that actually
2: is really an, uh, just sparked a couple little things for me.
1: Good. Yeah. So um, the 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 desert, uh, you know, in fact or uh, figuratively, should be kind of sort of the subject and setting for that sort of. Some of the language in in on the website that you will find uh, or the applicant will find um, on the high desert museum website and um, it the great thing about nonfiction and this is a nonfiction prize, not for fiction. The great thing about nonfiction is you can um, propose a project, have a couple of chapters completed and and it um, it's, you know, it's a candidate. It's a candidate for a publisher to look at, even in that form. So for the prize, uh, a bio, a sample of writing, hopefully from the, pr- the project that's being proposed, it's not to uh, award a completed project.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: It's to aw- it's to encourage the completion of a project. So that's yeah. why I say that uh, some writing that has been accomplished uh, to that project, Plus, the bio makes a good, solid application. Some applicants will submit a writing sample from a whole other project. They simply haven't begun yet, but they also are asked in the application to describe the proposed project in some detail. So, uh, yes, it's, it's to get more work done. It's to add to the body of desert literature not to celebrate something that's already been accomplished. Yeah, yeah well, that's, that's an
2: a, important distinction I think for people to know.
0: <laughs> how many uh submissions do you get on average?
1: I'd say the How much I,
0: reading are you doing?
1: Okay, so <laughs> so here's how that works on average, <clears throat> I'd say 70-ish. Wow. Some uh, some are uh you know, have misunderstood the form and so they sort of um Don't qualify. The way the the way it works is that the former board of the Waterston Prize, when it was its own little nonprofit Uh prior to the museum taking it on, uh, then and now continued to work as sort of the first readers. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, and that group forwards three top contenders. And then the guest judge chooses the winner from those three, oh, okay. right? Yeah. And so this year our our um, guest judge is Rena Priest, who is the poet laureate for the state of Washington. She's a Lummi tribal member. Her her book has won um, her her book Patriarchy Blues won the American Book Award in. When was that? I don't know, 2018 or 19. Um, And uh, that was a collection of poetry. Now, uh, a poet as guest judge, yeah, because if you can capture a scene or an emotion or compress an event uh, eloquently and clearly in a poem, then you can move into this longer form prose territory pretty readily. So she will be... I use the word exquisite. I think her her discernment will be very, very word oriented. Yeah, um, and that you know that that things are making sense in terms of how they segue. Um, we there's also going last year. Uh, Kevin Ferdarko was the the guest author, present presenter, and he attracted a big crowd um, for uh, his book, The Emerald Mile. I don't know if you're familiar with it but it, it's, it was an accounting of this crazy guy that took his uh, boat down when the dam was released into the Colorado <laughs> and, um, yes, and survived. Survived it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's, this is something I'm, I feel embarrassed to be stumbling for the listeners out there who are all river rats probably and what <laughs> um, she doesn't know the details and she was there and she heard him talk whatever anyway <laughs> the emerald mile a, an iconic book about the colorado river um but this year it's it's thor hansen who's known for his book feathers um but he, he a guggenheim fellow uh, a switzer environmental fellow no of relation the, unrelated
0: unfortunately uh, Go and ahead. winner of the
1: John Burroughs medal which is a big deal um, from the Natural History Museum in New York City and he has a whole bunch of books Buzz, Triumph of Seeds, Feathers Bartholomew Quill Impenetrable Forest and um, on the website for the High Desert Museum you can read a whole lot more about him but he's he's going to be the special guest this year and um, he actually was a guest years ago at the Nature of Words. He's a wonderful presenter yeah. and talk about up close and personal with nature, and uh, really a great example of that kind of prose writing. Mm. It, it will be exciting to have him here.
0: Excellent. Well, was Rena? Did she come to
1: Nature Words as well? No. Was she there? Okay. No, no, I don't think so.
0: I'm getting her confused with another one of the your maybe so guests. So.
2: You said that you can't dis- explain why the desert is your muse, but I want to poke you a little bit about a little bit more about it. Mm. And I don't know if it means do you have a reading you want to read of your own about the desert or just, you know, is there is a little more you can give us about about why the I, desert is your muse?
1: I think I mean, I think we can all find it in other places, but for me it turns out to be where uh Nature and man, or, you know, the natural environment and and the impact of man, is is kind of on a level playing field. When I get way out in the desert, nature seems the biggest deal. And I love that feeling. And I'm lucky to have spent basically three decades ranching before becoming a townie. Um, and, that you know, to have one's life dictated by nature, basically— You know, when you cut the hay, when's the best time to calve so you're not in the middle of a blizzard. In those (laughs) days, we actually did have blizzards, not just up in the mountains. (laughs) Um, So I guess it was that experience having that opportunity to, uh, well, to realize that you can't ever know it. Mm. I mean, I don't know how if you can ever know one square foot of ground. Or each other, really. I mean, we, it's just attention. It's the invitation to pay attention and the patience of the desert. All, all, you you know, so many writers who write about deserts say kind of the same thing. Uh, it's a fascination. It's it's a space that is both liberating and humbling at the same time. Um,
0: I remember reminiscing a little bit about your Nature Words uh, event, which I was such a big fan of. Um, You had that one panel, I I recall, that was on the American West. What is the modern American West? And and it was fascinating to me to hear, you know, five different authors, and not one of them could agree on it. And you even had—I can't remember the writer—who—who was the Bigfoot guy. You know, oh Robert Michael. Yeah, and and it was just veering all over the place, and discussing was was so compelling, and the and the visions of of what the West was and what the West will be, and um, you know, kudos to that because I still, when whenever we're in a conversation like this with, I'm with people, it, it I immediately flip back and think, you know, it's it's so unique for everybody.
1: It is, you know, and so w- one thing that um, the museum and uh, the writing rancher are. are working together on as well is every fall we are doing a writing intensive out in the desert and this will be the third or fourth year of that and so the museum sends a naturalist john nelson um, who does a morning field trip one of the mornings Uh, dennis jenkins of the u of o field school archaeologist who's doing lots of digs out in the desert now has refuted the clovis bridge the, the land bridge clovis theory because he's found evidence of human existence 16,000 years ago. Right.
2: That's a new, exciting
1: development. And, um, and, and then we write, right? So we go off on these field trips and we get back together and we write. And that, I love bringing people to a landscape that sort of ambush, ambushes what they think they're supposed to be writing, what they think <laughs> they came to do. Yeah. So between John Nelson and, and Dennis Jenkins and, and then just gathering in a wild place out in the desert, Um, Yeah, people are startled out of their usual kind of safe place. Not that it's scary. It's just creative.
2: You know, a creative person in this community told me that, uh, talking about the desert, that you have to be a really creative person um, to be able to distinguish or describe the colors of the desert because they're not so, like, flashy, you know. That kind of stuck with me. Um, Just... You know, it's just such a muted landscape
1: compared to, Maybe you it know. explains why houses in Mexico and Arizona are pink and yeah. green. For a place like Dang, we need some. Yeah. Super um, cool.
2: You have some books in front of you. I wonder if these are things that you wanted to read.
1: Well, I brought, what I brought is about the desert, but it's also about water.
2: Okay. I'd um, love to, we'd love to have you read something.
1: Well, this actually, I have to um, acknowledge the Deschutes River Conservancy that they asked me to um, write a poem for their gala last year. And uh, this is what I wrote. Shall I read it? Yes, absolutely. I hope I can read it. What's in it for the river? In the shadow of no rain, in this brittle-boned desert we call home, we strut and fret on a stage of basaltic sponge. For volcanic eons, paleo to present, the desert has banked water to loan, to steelhead, frog, salmon, and the likes of you and I who filled our thirsty cups to green, home, and working lands at the expense of wild. The liquid currency of river, stream, and lake rises unbidden, from deep under to straight arrow, meander, and oxbow, meeting out liquid nutrition on course to the ocean. We two-leggeds describe this cycle as though we invented it, as though the river didn't know it until we got here to tell it, showed up to interrupt it, as though we're separate from the ways of water. But we're not. Not from vapor, cloud, or dew, not from watery passages far, or hear such beauties as Metolius Weichus shoots. If we see ourselves as unconnected, might just as well tie a tourniquet around our bobbing, naked hearts, stop the throbbing current, eclipse the moon tides that rise inside us. For we are of the rivers and oceans born. We've come full, slow, crooked circle to a native wisdom here long before. At last, we're moved to ask, what's in it for the river? What return on its generous advance, its fund of trust, its freedom from interest? What is in it for the river? We know the aquifer is overdrawn, spent, unless we raise the balance in this artesian basin, raise the rate of saturation, pay back the liquid with our gold, our attention, the answer to the river is not much. Such a good one. Thank you for that. I can hear
0: our readers applauding. You just can't hear it. Right yeah, we're, we're doing little snaps <laughs> for you, Alan. <laughs>
1: That's all right. When you do poetry readings, this is very often <laughs> <Right>. what happens <laughs> you know, after the reading. Yeah, it's like wait, what? <laughs>
2: well, yeah, I mean, and then you know when you, there, there's the etiquette around, you got to wait till the end of the, the poet's reading. That's right. Not every poem gets a <laughs> clap or a snap. Uh, these are the things you learn. You go really, to a poetry reading. Really, mm.
1: nothing more humbling. <laughs>
2: And the the crowd sometimes. Oh, there was huge crowds. Yeah, huge, usually huge crowds. like yeah. you know yeah. hundreds, amphitheater right. level crowds. <laughs> 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 well, this has been such a pleasure to have you on, Ellen. Thank you so much for spending some time today with us. Thanks to you both.
0: Yeah, thanks for thanks for being here.